Garbage in your face? There's plenty of space out in space. B&L Starliners leaving each day. We'll clean up the mess while you're away. The jewel of the B&L fleet, the Axiom. Spend your five-year cruise in style. Waited on 24 hours a day by our fully automated crew. While your captain and autopilot chart a course for non-stop entertainment, fine dining, and with our all-access hover chairs, even Grandma can join the fun. There's no need to walk. The Axiom. All right, we are back at you, and we are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast, and I'm Steve. I'm Marlo. And today we're talking about Chapter 2, What If You Held a Protest and Everyone Came? Yep. And uh, you were uh, saying that title derives from a slogan from the, the 60s. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, What If You Held a War and No One Came? This being a little inversion of that. Oh. Suppose they gave a war and no one came by uh, Charlotte E. Keyes in her 1966 article from McCall magazine about the Vietnam War. And this is, what if you held a protest and everyone came? And today we're talking about capitalist realism. So the chapter starts out with in the case of gangster rap elroy capitalist realism takes the form of a kind of super identification with capital at its most pitilessly predatory um so basically i think the top thing to talk about and just to set the scene for those listening is this is kind of a some might call it dialectical kind of inversion of the first chapter so the first chapter concentrated on uh, largely traditionally cynical views of capitalism, but in kind of this, you know, acceptance of the inevitability, it's a dog-eat-dog world, the best you can do is make the most from this terrible world and be a predator yourself. This is actually taking two examples of apparent protest uh, arguably superficial anti-capitalism and showing how in a certain form uh, it also reinforces capitalist realism in the same way that he identified in the last chapter Frank Miller, Elroy, and the like uh, as amplifying capitalist realism from this sort of predatory negative perspective. This is saying the positive also can do that. Yeah, he's, he's basically saying that in anti-capitalism, and specifically in the 2000s when he was writing this, there was an anti-capitalist movement that was going on that was seen as this broad attempt to challenge capitalism if we just do mass protests. Make the world a better place, and we'll get into sort of the... And it's worth noting that this chapter kind of puts together two different k-punk articles that are uh kind of frankensteined into the chapter so the first one is from 2008 robot historian in ruins which takes up our first subject or the first anti-capitalist thing that he notes which is wally the 2008 movie wally And the second K-Punk article is the name of the chapter, 
What if they had a protest and everyone came, which was written in 2005, right after the Live 8 concert. So he's taking these two K-Punk articles, these two events, and like putting them together and saying, here's my reasons for why anti-capitalism doesn't actually challenge capitalism. Yeah. Or, or apparent protest, we'll say. I mean, I don't think he would call either of these things anti-capitalist, even in their purported and of what they are. I mean, particularly, as we'll get into with Live 8, uh, it was actually very overtly dismissive of anti-capitalism. Okay, so first we're going to talk about the movie WALL-E from 2008, this Lovely Disney Pixar film that I'm sure many of our listeners have seen before, but if you haven't, it follows a robot in a post-apocalyptic world uh, that humans have all fled into this uh, these giant ships. The one that we follow is the Axiom, and the whole world is filled with garbage, and Wally's a cute robot that picks up the garbage and then saves the world in the end. Yeah, and, and I think uh, some notable, I mean, I'm assuming most people have seen Wally or at least vaguely know what it's about. If you haven't, you have two options. One, you send Disney your money for a Disney Plus account and watch Wally there. Two, you send us money on our Patreon and listen to our special episode about Wally. Um, we will have a Patreon episode coming out about Wally following this episode. Right. So. so, you know. Uh, of note, uh, the pollution is explicitly said, shown to have been caused by a private corporation, by and large. The corporation's uh, name is by and large. It, it's essentially a 2008 Walmart uh, equivalency that you can also probably apply to Amazon in our latter ages. It's a great movie, Fred Willard's in it. But yeah, it's caused by a private corporation by and large. Humanity has been evacuated from Earth onto these generation ships. They've been, as you see, up there for 700 years. Humanity has degraded into a bunch of dumb fatsos who like to watch their TVs all day. Yeah, and he links this to two different philosophers and the way in which the axiom, which, as we say on our Patreon episode, is sort of like a almost a utopia. There's no flow of capital. There's no exchange of commodities. It's completely just you're living within your computer and you don't actually exchange anything. And he says here, what we have here is a vision of control and communication much like Jean Baudrillard understood it, in which subjugation no longer takes the form of a subordination to an extrinsic spectacle, but rather invites us to interact and participate. So, in Jean Baudrillard's idea, like, you don't actually know that you're being propagandized by an authoritarian force. An authoritarian kind of invites you to experience the advertisement yourself, you become the advertisement, the advertisement is everywhere around you and you don't know where the advertisement ends and where you begin and all of this is controlled through the mediation of technology. You know, throughout the film, I think I commented, it's almost a somewhat quaint, like, 
ad bustersy 90s critique of consumerism more than a critique of capitalism in many ways. There's one scene that I remember that kind of highlights what you were saying about Baudrillard where the guys are like, there are these fatzos who are in their like little hover chairs with a big like little computer screen in front of them, just barking shit at them all day. And they, um, some commercial goes, uh, try blue, it's the new red. Attention Axiom shoppers, try blue, it's the new red. Ooh. And they just like all press a button and they're all matching jumpsuits change from blue to red. Um, yeah, it's like it's the... all, there's a lot of stuff like that. I mean, on Earth, uh, some of the last signs of civilization are these like video billboards that have just been playing on repeat forever. And it's all kind of premised in this very jocular, you know, it kind of reminds you of even of the Fallout games of just these like almost like 50s style advertisements uh, for this like ever present over corporation of by and large. It, it reminds me a little bit of that meme where you take out the chip out of your brain and you put in the new chip. Right, yeah, yeah. There's, there's like what Bolgerard called like a symbolic exchange. There wasn't anything that was grown from it. The only thing that changed was, hey, you're now blue, not red. There's no, like, anything that grows out of it. It's just a circular kind of uh, way in which things are moved. So, uh, Fowler and interpassivity is probably the more important thing to the overall chapter, especially when it comes to tying this into Live 8 later. Yeah. We have Robert Fowler, and he is best known for his book... Um, Interpassivity, the Aesthetics of Delegated Enjoyment from 2017, which came out much later than this book, but it's, it's the term that he's associated with, and interpassivity is a very interesting and I think familiar concept for a lot of people, even if they don't know that they're familiar with it. It's essentially extraneous things performing for you so you don't have to. And an example of that is the laugh track on a sitcom show where there's laughing and then basically the laugh trap laughs for you so that yeah, you don't have to. It gives a funny to. vibe that can make up for the joke not being funny itself. Right, and there's also like examples where you have this where people take out laugh tracks and it right. ends up sounding creepy. Right. So I, the I, laugh track. I think Seinfeld has a famous example, or or maybe it's Friends. Like yeah, a, David uh, Schwimmer's character. Yeah, David Schwimmer's character is like a serial off. killer if you don't have a laugh track following. <laughs> so that's an example of interpassivity. Other examples that I would say is like I think of Twitch streaming. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, game streaming is a pretty clear one that really wasn't a thing when this book was written and certainly not a thing when Fowler was writing the book. I mean, you know, you can arguably say like, well, why aren't just, I mean, you know, watching sports, yeah. um, something, you know, but then you could also be an asshole and say like, well, what about like a movie? You're not doing the things you're watching someone else do it. And that's where he says here, 
that Wally performs the uh, protest against capitalism or the anti-capitalism for you. Right. And he's using Wally as an example of interpassivity for your politics. And here he, he says, a film like Wally exemplifies what Robert Fowler has called interpassivity. The film performs our anti-capitalism for us, allowing us to continue to consume with impunity. The role of capitalist ideology is not to make an explicit case for something in the way that propaganda does, but to conceal the fact that the operations of capital do not depend on any sort of subjectively assumed belief. So you don't have to believe in capitalism in order to participate within it. Similarly, you can view yourself as fighting against capitalism watching Wally, right? Right. He then pulls Zizek into this. Um, this is a very classic uh, concept quote from Sublime Object of Ideology by Zizek. Uh, today's society must appear post-ideological. The prevailing ideology is that of cynicism. People no longer believe in ideological truth. They do not take ideological propositions seriously. The fundamental level of ideology, however, is not the illusion of making the real state of things, but that of an unconscious fantasy structuring our social reality itself. And at this level, we are, of course, far from being a post-ideological society. Cynical distance is just one way to blind ourselves from the structural power of ideological fantasy. Even if we do not take things seriously, even if we keep an ironical distance, we are still doing that. So Zizek's um, kind of thrust in a, lo a lot of how he approaches things is this idea that uh, the strongest thing ideology needs to actually convince you of is basically that it doesn't exist and the things you think matter on some fundamental level. And basically the use of irony, he basically views modern capitalist society as this society of disavowal. Uh, that we no longer are in this classical, you could call it Stalinist structure of ideology where the truth must be hidden from the masses or the truth can even be hidden from the masses. Um, you know, Marxist literature is readily available in capitalist society. Uh, Wally is a blockbuster movie in capitalist society and talks about how capitalism will ruin our environment and make our planet uninhabitable. You're, you're not hiding information from people. What you're hiding is the idea that them having this information actually matters because that convinces them essentially that by having the information, uh, that is a stand-in that's enough to allow them to not actually do anything about it and continue to participate in this thing that they know is wrong and they've convinced themselves because they know it's wrong, they're kind of above it. It, it goes back to the post-ideological idea that we had in the first chapter of we've gotten past the Cold War and Stalinism, we've defeated fascism. At the end of history, 
in Fukuyama's uh, like end of history view, uh, liberal capitalism has defeated all, and therefore it's the only game in town, right? So what we associate with Stalinism and fascism is the propaganda, and what we, quote, we in liberal capitalism is doing not propaganda. And what Zizek, I think, is saying is that the fact that you think that we're not doing propaganda makes it the most successful propaganda of all. Yeah, or even in many ways, like, pointing out you think that because you can recognize something at propaganda, that makes it non-effective. Or a movie simply saying, oh, capitalism is good or communism is bad might be pointed out to someone, oh, that's propaganda, but you're still continuing to participate in the capitalism. And in fact, capitalism, generally, that comes off as corny. Capitalism doesn't want to peddle that. What capitalism wants to peddle is buy our product because it's resistant, because you know how the system is, and Man. you're smarter than the system, so you're going to, you know, watch Wally. He uses, Zizek uses the example of, of money as right. an example of this exact phenomenon that happens in uh, non-ideological. Like, money is the most uh, valuable thing, but we all pretend as though money has no value to us. Yeah, well, we correctly say that there's not, no intrinsic value. There is a money in value. And that's freely available information. If we all stopped using money, it would literally not have any value. If we stopped participating in capitalism, there wouldn't be capitalism. And I can say that out loud and know that. And I'm still going to participate in capitalism. I'm still going to understand that my living situation and ability to eat is contingent on money having value. Even if I know that money doesn't objectively have value. So, yeah, that's uh, the example Zizek does use in Sublime Object is he's specifically kind of talking about money around there. So, here we're going to shortly transition to... Uh our live a discussion, but he has this really great paragraph that I'm going to read. That's probably my favorite from this chapter. Corporate anti-capitalism wouldn't matter if it could be differentiated from an authentic anti-capitalist movement. Yet, even before its momentum was stalled by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, the so-called anti-capitalist movement seemed also to have conceded too much to capitalist realism. Since it was unable to posit a coherent alternative political-economic model to capitalism, the suspicion was that the actual aim was not to replace capitalism, but to mitigate its worst excesses. And, since the form of its activities tended to be staging of protest rather than political organization, there was a sense that the anti-capitalism movement consisted of making a series of hysterical demands 
which it didn't expect to be met. And I think that sort of summarizes his problems with what I called before this anti-capitalist movement in the 2000s that I think emerged before 9-11, certainly like Seattle 99 was sort of like, I'd say more genuine anti-capitalist moment. There were other like major attempts to actually... I don't think he's talking about Seattle. I, I would think he'd be talking about the larger, you know, establishment. You know, I think there is really since the 60s, this identifiable shift in Western political activism from on a cogent effort to take power or seize power and instead what essentially amounts to a guerrilla marketing campaign for whatever it is you're asking for. We're going to get into more details in the next section. It's more or less... When you Are you talking about ad busters kind of being Well, not, this? not even just ad... I mean, just the protest... Like, ask the average person who goes to a protest. I, I go to many. But ask the average person, what are you trying to do? Uh, and they'll say something along the lines of... We want to get our message out there, convince people to join us, blah, blah, blah. And that's all well and good, and there might be a place for that. But that is also what advertising does. That's also what marketing is. Like, you're just describing marketing, and you happen in your scenario to think that you going for a little walk with some friends is an effective marketing campaign. Not saying you're wrong, and I'm not even denigrating the idea of that, but you are not trying to overturn political power and seize it for yourself. You're not storming the castles, you're not... um, Not storming the castles, no. The the castles, yes. You're not storming the castles. You're not putting up guillotines in front of... No one's stealing Nancy Pelosi's laptop. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's sort of an identifiable thing that he's talking about because, you know, there there is absolutely, to be clear, a place for getting your message out there and convincing people um, to join your side. And also it would be utterly um silly of me to suggest that you know we should think that a march down fifth avenue is going to overthrow the u.s government so i'm I'm not even saying those things but the or in any respective city outside of new york yeah yeah or you know like washington dc the land of nancy pelosi's laptops but um (laughs) You know, uh, what I would say is that the ultimate end state of this is an ultimate marketing campaign, which will bring us to the second example he uses in this chapter. All right, onward and upward into the land of Madonna. I have become and Pink Floyd. We've never been wealthier. We've never been healthier. We know what it costs. We know what to do. Do it. Do it. Are you ready to start a revolution? You 
Okay, so this is our second, the second part and also the second K-Punk, what if they had a protest and everyone came, which you can find online in K-Punk, but he also turned into the second half of this chapter, so we're going to be referring to both in this. So yeah, Live 8, 2005. Does anybody remember it? Do you remember it, Marlo? Yeah, vaguely. I remember it only because Pink Floyd reunited. That was the only thing I watched. Mm-hmm. And it was named so because they... It was named after the fucking G8. The G8... is probably there was a, one. There was a concert in each one of the G8 countries, including South Africa. Yeah, well, the G8 plus one countries, which would be G8 plus South Africa at the time. Uh, right. So, I mean, I think that's an identifiable problem number one that is the gets to the crux of what we were talking about, about this idea of post-ideology, uh, this idea of protest as marketing, and so forth, which is this notion that the quote from what we just heard uh, from uh, Mr. Bono, uh, <laughs> from Sonny Bono, was, we know what to do, we know what it costs, now do. So it's this fundamental idea that liberalism loves, that there is a right answer. There's a right answer to every question. It's not people are viewing things differently because there is... Two different interests and one interest getting their beliefs put into practice will necessarily harm the other interest. It is there's a right answer that will be good for everybody. We just need to figure it out. And the only thing stopping us is not figuring it out. And it, it also goes back to that Zizek idea of irony where... You know, in the classical sense, if you were to assume that propaganda meant saying this is true, this is false about a different state of things than how things are, the government is a good thing, then all the people need to hear is the government is bad. That actually the true thing is true and the thing that the government is telling you is true is false. And by hearing that truth, we can overturn it. And what Zizek is saying is, no, in fact, hearing that truth doesn't mean we can overturn it. And in this case, there isn't actually a solution to poverty like that. Poverty is created because these people are in power who need poverty to continue to exist. And they're not going to pay what it costs to solve poverty, not because they're like, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but because they don't want to end poverty. <laughs> And we still do this. We still, like, it did not stop at Live 8. And it, we still kind of have this mentality, like, even with, I mean, especially with this idea of, like, popular polls, polling people for Medicare for All, and yeah. that if only the ruling elites knew how much people all wanted Medicare for All, we and would... And it'll actually save us money. Yeah, it'll act it's rational. We all know this, but this knowledge that this absolute thing would help us is known by the elites leads to these conclusions of right. a better there, there world. Are, there are many people, I, I don't know 
anymore, but uh, at certain points, certainly my parents, who legitimately uh, believe that Biden probably wants Medicare for all. He just doesn't think it's a winning message for his campaign. There's a lot of people who truly believe that. Uh, I saw an example of this yesterday or the day before. Somebody found the homelessness or the the homeless records and that there was like 580,000 homeless people living in America up until the pandemic happened and then they put 200,000 into empty hotels and the homeless numbers dipped substantially and then those programs timed out and now we're back up to 500 something thousand homeless right, people. Right, that's, that's a classic example and, amongst the progressive liberals where it's like, yeah, no, you can easily run those numbers about how much it costs to house every homeless person and how much it would save us to do so. And the, the video I saw was, if we only let everybody know that right. this is the truth, that they are denying people houses instead of, you know, that homelessness is a choice then we can protest the government and say, give everybody houses because it's better for all of us. Right, yeah, no, the government's problem is they just haven't run numbers, I guess. But, yeah, to know that. Well, then you have to run the numbers on killing the poor. Right, yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So, with respect, you know, we had this conversation before. I'm just saying, have you tried it? No, of course we haven't tried it. We're not going to try it. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying run it through the computer, see if it would work. Whether it would work is not the issue. So you think it might work? That's pretty right wing. No, I I don't think it'll work. I think it might. It it wouldn't. (laughs) Why not? Well, because they do all the, you know, they they clean all... We need them for all the things that we... So, yeah, so how does Live 8 as he's saying, relate to all of this? Well, he's relating it to the malevolent father, which you kind of identified in our current day with Biden. Like, he's hoarding it for himself, right? He's hoarding all of the Mm. things, all of these social democratic welfare kind of things, and we just have to protest enough until he gives it to us. So he says, Live 8 was uh, the protest impulse of the 60s posited a malevolent father, the harbinger of the reality principle that supposedly cruelly and arbitrarily denies the right to total enjoyment. In the time of Live 8, uh, and in his K-Punk article, he identifies this with Bush, that Bush was the denier, that he was keeping everyone in poverty and only if all of these world elites could stand up and let him know that we can do this all together, then Bush will give in, right? Right, okay, so to back up a little bit, because this is a common critique of Fisher that I hear a lot from... Uh, I'll say the uh, anti-intellectual dummies of Twitter, Um, which is, it's all a bunch of psychoanalysis shit that I don't understand and can't be bothered with. Uh, So the whole malevolent father thing since the 60s and all that was just saying what I was saying earlier about the idea of 
shaping your protest around the notion of essentially a marketing campaign rather than taking power. So the malevolent father or anal father, as Zizek likes to giggly call him. Or the denial father, yeah. denying father. Yeah, but anyway, um, it's all your basic like Freud via Lacan via Zizek by Mark Fisher. So it's a very basic notion of when you're a kid, daddy, daddy, man, please have some candy. Dad says no. This isn't because dad doesn't have the means to give you candy. He absolutely could give you, from a child's perspective, an infinite amount of candy. So therefore, it's the child's goal to simply convince father to give him candy. And that's essentially how the 60s figured the protest of there's the government is just this arbitrary denier of pleasure and we just have to ask hard enough and we can get everything we want there's no need to change the government there's no need to kill your father and fuck your mother um we can simply keep our father in place and just convince him to deny us a little less right and in this case the compassionate mother maternal figure is tony blair and bono yeah so and this is also kind of a good cop bad cop <laughs> thing as well that he's just saying in freudian language but it's just good cop bad cop. <laughs> uh, but this is also more the k-punk well than. it it also as fisher says in the k-punk article that it allows someone like Blair to contrast himself against Bush, whereas Bush is denying people all these, like he's like the, the conservative kind of like that, that hoards everything, whereas it allows Blair to cast himself as this compassionate one. And, and it was indeed Blair who was on that video that we looked watched because he became this... the. The British um, kind of social democratic uh, leader that uh, didn't want to identify with the, the malevolent father. And he says here, and one of the successes of the current global elite has been their avoidance of identification with the figure of the hoarding father even though the reality they impose on the young is substantially harsher than the conditions they protested against in the 60s. And I think that kind of goes to what we've been saying, that, like, who's to say, you know, what would happen if Bono became president of the United States and, and replaced Bush? Would it be better? That's sort of like the question that's posited Arguably, that almost happened with Wyclef Jean in Haiti, but <laughs> that's a whole other level of France. But you know, you know what I mean. Like if they're protesting <clears throat> and they actually took right well, power, I mean, again, if they took power rather than just protest, as we you know are saying, this protest is largely a commodified anti-protest that already. And, the, you know, the other thing with this, assuming the father figure, blah, 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 is capitalist realism is a given right now. We aren't arguing Marxist versus anarchists about what the best system to replace capitalism with is. We have assumed capitalism is here forever. 
but liberalism has these promises that some level of compassion and rationality and free exchange of information will solve the problem. And also, as he says here, it launders our libido. Mm -hmm. That basically, if we kind of admit that capitalism is the best way and that we're going to go with the more compassionate one, we will be, you know, to take your example of the sweets, we'll be throwing some sweets. When, when Bono says, touch me, that <laughs> interpassivity does the touching of me for me. No. Uh, yeah, he, he says it here. There is a sense in which it simply is the case that the political elite are our servants. The miserable service they provide from us is to launder our libidos, to obligingly represent for us our disavowed desires as if they had nothing to do with us. Me. All right, there's uh, the Project Red. Product uh, Red. Product Red. Apparently still exists. All right, so yeah, Product Red. Report. A lot of people know the Irish rock star Bono as the front man for U2. We've come to know him as well for his fight against poverty and disease on a global scale. A million dollars goes into the global fund after our first year. By buying products like Gap t-shirts, red iPods, red cell phones, consumers have contributed $47 million to the fight against the biggest killers in Africa. H HIV, AIDS, malaria, and TB. The idea is to make red the star, not me. I mean, some people push back against it, you know, and uh, it's, it's irritating. Some people don't like the idea that companies can make profit, but uh, we want them to make profit on this because it makes it sustainable. Uh, All right, that I'm made... going to call him Irish rock star Bono from now on. <laughs> Whenever I, like, refer to him now. Irish rock star Bono. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, okay, so if anyone was, like, not following that somehow, All Product Red is is basically uh, the same thing as fair trade certification, but just a more general charity. Yeah, some products were, had a label that said Product Red, and you could buy them, and then, like, our, some of your money would go to charity, kind of like... Um, Newman's? Uh, yeah, Newman's. Newman's. Uh, Except uh, less of your money went to charity. But anyway, it's so sustainable. You haven't heard of this if you're under 30. Uh, although apparently, according to a Google search, you can still get like a product red iPod. Like they still sell iPods, one, and some of them are product reds. I think, I think it's i iPads or like, there's Echoes. Echoes? Oh, you can get an i. Okay, sure. Pro yeah, product red Echo. Okay, so they, they apparently still do this. And as I think you've pointed out, like, in September 2023, there was a uh, smartwatch that was an Apple announced the Apple Watch Series 9 with a product red color option. Like, for some reason that, like, reminds me of the Rick and Morty line of... No, I don't want to see your Pog collection. <laughs> it's just such a like weirdly anachronistic thing that like yeah, they're gonna like Apple's gonna come to me and go like, hey, we have a product red labeled product. Be like that was like 
two years in the mid-2000s. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me a lot of campaigns that you see on sort of infomercials or campaigns you see in grocery stores. I know myself. Why does an Irish rock star Bono sell fucking salad dressing with his fucking Irish rock star face on it like Newman? I'd, I'd, I'd be cool with that. Bono dressing? Yeah, yeah, Irish rock star Bono dressing. Would it, okay, okay, would it uh, be... Just do exactly the same as Newman's own. Like, what, just have like... No, why don't you just make it, why don't you just make it product red salad dressing? Right, but no, I'm saying... And just, it would be red colored. Yeah, whatever, but like, just like have it so that like the Caesar salad will have like... Irish rock star Bono, but like his face is in marble and shit. And just donate all the money, just like the Newman's does. Just do the salad dressing. Salad dressing is thus far the most effective way for capitalism to solve its own problems, as Paul Newman has demonstrated. I still like the idea of like a product red version of Newman's. Like one of the Newman's dressing flavors is red, and instead of Newman's head, it has Bono's head. Yeah, or you could just have a whole line. Because it seems like what Product Red does is it goes to other companies and says, do a Product Red version of ours. Right, right, right. I'm saying, though, that Irish Rockstar Bono should just, in addition or even in lieu of, because I am dubious of the idea that Product Red is still a thing, despite what anyone wants to tell me. Um, but, uh, in lieu of that, he start, just start his own salad dressing company and just clearly just rip off Newman's own entirely in its labeling, uh, flavors. Like, yeah, you'll have a Caesar, but it'll be Irish Rockstar Bono's face with like the little olive branch thing over it. You know, that kind of shit. But anyway, so yeah. So what does Mark Fisher say about Irish Rockstar Bono's product red? <laughs> yeah, he says it's kind of an ideological blackmail because, like, how do you argue against that? Well, he, he says about ideological blackmail that that was from the original... Live Aid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's saying that this is a continuation of that, even though they, were, they said they had to act straight away, you know, there was a suspension of the immediacy, and then it was turned into a bunch of different products that was supposed to carry on that spirit. So he says, Irish rock star Bono's product red brand wanted to dispense even with the philanthropic intermediary. Philanthropy is like hippie music holding hands, Bono proclaimed. Red is more like punk rock, hip hop. This should feel like hard commerce. The point was not to offer an alternative to capitalism. On the contrary, Products Red's uh, punk rock or hip-hop character consisted in its realistic acceptance that capitalism is the only game in town. No, the aim was only to ensure that some of the proceeds of particular transactions went to good causes. The fantasy being that Western consumerism, far from being intrinsically implicated in systemic global inequalities, could itself solve them. All we had to do is buy the right products. Right. And so I'd also, to kind of go back to 
the idea of the ideological blackmail and this, you know, I just want to highlight again this notion of it's activism sans politics. It's this attempt at post-ideological consensus building that there is a singular understandably right way to end poverty that costs X number of dollars and we simply need to spend it. And I mean, you know, how much that is inherently undermined by the fact that there needed to be a Live Aid after Live Aid, you know, 30 years past and yeah, or literal, 20 years, lit I guess, past. And they needed to do it again, even though they, you know, raised the money and spent the money 20 years ago. And there's still these philanthropic concert right, series. poverty still exists. Yeah. Homelessness still exists. People still live precariously, if not more so than before. And we're still going to continue having concert series that say we're going to end it. I, I heard uh, testimonies of children who couldn't get medical care their hands swelled up like two balloons <laughs> that, the, the, that's a reference if you're talking they could not hear what you were saying <laughs> distance ship smoke on the horizon <laughs> um, these are but a few of the testimonies i heard about poverty <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, so this is another episode where we're going to reference our favorite uh, people that love each other, uh, Roger Waters and David Gilmour, um, people who, who hate each other, but you know what they're doing? They're coming together for one night to fight global poverty in 2005. Global poverty is bigger than Israel-Palestine. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, see you next week. Uh, for chapter three, this is comfortably numb. Live from Live Aid, that's now, why we're playing. I hear you feel